listeners. Welcome to Grief Out Loud. Remember the last time you tried to talk about grief and suddenly everybody left the room? Grief Out Loud is opening up this often avoided conversation because grief is hard enough without having to go through it alone. We bring you a mix of personal stories, tips for supporting children, teens, and yourself, and interviews with professionals in the grief world. Platitude and cliche-free, we promise. Grief Out Loud is hosted by me, Jana DeCristofaro, and produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children and Families in Portland, Oregon. What do you remember about being three and a half? If you're anything like most of us, your memories are hazy and scattered. Maybe you have an image of the room that you slept in, or a vague sense of what it felt like to be hugged by a family member. What you likely don't have are clear, articulated memories of interactions and relationships, the kind that older children, teens, and adults can access when it comes to remembering someone who has died. Mary Pluff is a clinical psychologist who had a really clear and professional sense of how young children understand death and grief. The sense, which she acquired over years of working with clients, came home in a very real way when her sister Martha died leaving behind a -a three-and-a-half-year-old daughter, Leah Marie. Martha, who had been diagnosed and treated for an aggressive form of breast cancer, decided to move forward with an experimental treatment that had the potential to extend her life expectancy. But in the end, it was the side effects of this treatment that caused her death. Leah Marie, who would wrestle with what it meant to have a mother die and to grow up with the sense of being motherless, would do so alongside Mary, who was really involved with supporting Leah Marie in her grief. Mary recently published a memoir about this experience, and it's called I Know It In My Heart, Walking Through Grief With a Child. She delves deeply into what it means to be a young child facing the wide and intense range of emotions that come with the death of a parent. Mary, thank you so much for being part of Grief Out Loud today. Well, thanks for having me. It's a great opportunity. I appreciate it. And it's fun for me to be talking to a fellow East Coaster, especially as I'm sitting here in Portland, Oregon. Aha. Well, we're the real Portland here in Portland, Maine. So (laughs) at least we claim to be. (laughs) We did have it first. I'll give you that for sure. Yes, we did. (laughs) Mary, early on in your book, you write about how your sister's illness and her eventual death changed you and her husband, Herb, and her daughter, Leah Marie but that Martha's spirit and personality remained unchanged. I loved the passage about this because because of how you contrasted the way in which Martha remained herself throughout her illness and her intense treatment, but then how radically the three of you who were left grieving her death were changed. How would you describe Martha to those of us who never got to know her? Well, she was her own person from day one. By the time she was about 18 months old, my mother would call her a runner because if you turned your back, she'd head for the back door, push it open, and run down the street. Um, She took her doll carriage for a walk once when she was four or five and was a mile and a half away when we finally found her. Um, she was adventuresome. She was daring. She was, by college, very much involved in the civil rights movement. And in the book, um, I talk about her as the red-haired Irish Catholic girl who went to Black Panther meetings at night. And that's about what it was like in college. She was very much a civil rights activist and a labor union activist, not at all envious of her big sister, who was was much more of an introvert and a musician and uh, 
a people person. For Martha, the world was about action and adventure. And in her office life, she was the kind of person who could take an idea and turn it into action. So she was really committed to changing the world, to, to making a difference in that way. She was. She had a lot of courage. She was not afraid of very much. How would you describe her as, as a mother? Well, Martha, one of the things that brought us cl uh, closer together was the fact that it took her nine years to uh, conceive a child. She worked early on in her late 20s, and when she decided at about age 30 to start a family, she really wanted to have a child. And she had multiple miscarriages, many different kinds of problems. So Leah Marie's birth, we joked, was not nine months. It was nine years in gestation. And she was as uh, invested in this mothering process as anybody could be. She loved her daughter and really was thrilled to be the primary parent uh, when she came along. She took a lot of that intensity and passion that she had for social justice work into her role as a parent. She was determined. That is the word I use about her all the time. If she wanted something, there was an intense, driven determination. I'm going to do whatever I need to do to get it. It's one of the things that made her choose to do the treatment when it was offered to her is that after having had surgery and chemo and radiation for the breast cancer that she had, she was unsatisfied with the notion about five years or 10 year survival rates. She said, I need 20 years to raise my daughter. And so when they said to her, we'd really like you to do this experimental treatment that we hope will extend the lives of young women with breast cancer, she signed up. It's interesting how when someone's faced with an illness and having to make decisions about treatment, it can be so vital for people to be able to choose a path that's in alignment with who they are in the world and their priorities and what they value. I think that's really true. We have to respect that individual choice. And I honestly, we read all the, all the research. We knew this was experimental, but I honestly never doubted that if she saw it as a chance to be here for her daughter, that she would do it. I also knew that it tapped into her being on the front lines. She was not the kind of person who said, why did this happen to me? She said, why not me? And if I can help other people, if I can push the knowledge further, then I'll never forgive myself if I don't do it. It was not a hard decision for her. I think it was very consistent, as you say, with her personality. And yeah, thinking about how important it is to respect people's autonomy when it comes to making those decisions about treatment and to recognize that the decisions of even the people we're closest to might be really different than what we would choose for ourselves. Absolutely. I, I think the right choice is your choice and it's got to make you feel as though you are doing you're living through this process uh, in a way that's consistent with your values and also with your personality and your temperament. So I, I, this wouldn't have been right for everyone. And I certainly understand that. 
As I was reading your book, I was totally captivated by your niece, Leah Marie, Martha's daughter. You do just such an amazing job of illustrating her personality and, and her way of making sense of her mother's illness and her mother's death. Uh, Leah Marie was, she was three when her mother died. Is that right? That's right. That's right. She came to us at exactly three and a half for Martha to go into this treatment process. She was three years and 10 months old uh, at the time of Martha's death. And in your professional role as a clinical psychologist, you knew about grief and working with patients, but it's a whole different story when grief is right there in your family. How did witnessing Leah Marie's process change or confirm or alter your understanding of grief? Well, you're right. I, I had been practicing for about 20 years, so I felt a kind of false sense of confidence, I think. When Martha said, can you take her for three weeks? I thought, oh, sure. I, you know, I can help her adapt to a new family and away from home. And of course, at that point, we were not thinking about death and dying. But my practice, I think what at, what this personal experience added the most was the evolutionary aspects of childhood grief. I understood that children react to grief at the developmental level that they are when it happens, and that we have to be respectful of what they are capable of understanding and understand that they're going to misinterpret and not be able to understand certain aspects at different ages. But what I watched with Leah Marie was how, as she grew, she grew into her grief. As she developed the grief and her development, cognitively, emotionally, behaviorally, all was woven together, and she revisited her grief years after the time of Martha's death, um, because it was a part of her life experience, but it became understood in deeper and fuller ways. Her questions were different um, as she evolved into later childhood. Do you have some examples of maybe questions or ways that Leah Marie understood what was happening or, or happened to her mother when she was three or four versus when she was older? Absolutely. Um, one of the things that makes childhood grief uh, at that three and four age so hard is that you don't have the cognitive understanding of simple words like maybe and forever <laughs> and death. And you are really trying to talk to a child about constructs that normally they don't conceptual, can't conceptually grasp for years uh, ahead of them. We played on the floor over and over again the construct of death, of someone dying and coming back. And after her mother died, months later, she would beg her dad to go to the train station where Martha used to get off the commuter train at the end of the day. And she'd say, please, Daddy, she always got off the train. Maybe she will again. Won't you at least try? So this is months after her, her mother's death. There's still the construct that someone was gone forever was an impossible one for her to grasp entirely. And I think that's, that's one example. Later, around seven or eight, there was another way in which having not having a mother made her feel abnormal herself. There's something wrong with me. I must be defective if the world has given me this 
burden to carry. It's my, and she would say to me, I just want to be normal. I want to be like everybody else. There's something wrong with me that I don't have this. So again, that's seven or eight is that time when we are comparing ourselves to other kids, developing an identity. I'm bigger, taller, faster, stronger. Part of that identity for her is I am motherless. For her, there was a little bit of self-blame in there, which is very typical for children going through that age and stage. I have a lot of kids who come through my groups and they start at five or six. And at that point, they're really open with talking about who died and how that person died. And then as they get older, they get to be seven, eight, nine, I start to see these same kids. We have this guideline called I pass, which means they don't have to talk if they don't want to. And and these kids start to use that I pass rule more. It's interesting. My sense of it is when they're five and six, they're telling their story only from their perspective. And then as they hit seven, eight, and nine, 10, that's when they're starting to realize like, oh, other people are watching and listening from their own perspective. And and those people might start to think about me in a certain way or judge me in a certain way because of the story. So maybe I don't want to share as openly. I, I think that's very true. The meaning of the event changes as their cognitive and emotional growth evolves and they understand it anew and revisit it even months and years after the death. So time is a different uh, construct for in childhood grief. For most adults, time is your friend. The horror of death is something you understand cognitively. And in the beginning, you can certainly be overwhelmed and it can be uh, dislocating, devastating, despairing, all of those awful words. But as time progresses, we hopefully learn uh, coping skills, adaptation skills, and, and can move our lives forward. For children, it's more like a spiral that as their develop, as their growth and development evolves upward, they have to revisit their grief at different levels. Discovering it having what I want to call new meaning. Aha, now what does it mean at 11? not to have a mom, something very different from what it meant at five. At five, it might be who's going to brush my hair. At 11, it's who's going to help me with my relationships and with growing up and with all of those things. So it is a different process for children. They grow into their grief, I like to say, not in the sense of it getting worse, but in the sense of it becoming different questions at different developmental levels. And as you mentioned earlier, maybe having a fuller understanding of how grief will continue to permeate through the many aspects of their life. And and when I think about adults, you know, we're like, we get it cognitively. And maybe we can forecast how things might be different in the future. But I don't know if that necessarily can protect us or save us from re-experiencing our grief every time we hit one of those milestones, like graduating or partnering with someone or buying a house, you know, all those things we do as adults. I think that's, that's absolutely true. But the phrase I use for it is pre-grieve. Um, if I, at, at 40, I know who I am, I have a sense of a, an articulated ego. And I also know who this person was in relationship to me. And so, no, I can't entirely inoculate myself from what it will be like to not have them at a child's wedding or in retirement. 
but I can more easily imagine myself at that time. And I can project ahead in a way that at least allows us to soften those blows. A five-year-old can't even begin to imagine who they will be at 15. What will they care about? What will matter to them? What will their their uh, interests be. That is not, they can imagine growing up in, in a very concrete sense, but they don't have that capacity to put themselves ahead, to look ahead in any emotional way and know uh, what they, uh, who they're going to be, never mind who their parent would be. I love that way of conceptualizing the idea of growing into grief, but also growing into themselves. So as they get to know themselves, they get to know themselves as kids and young adults who are grieving. And, and what does that mean for them? Absolutely. And it's why sometimes the things that soothe adults don't always soothe grieving children. Pictures of themselves at a younger age with their parent sometimes just feel like that little kid, but not who I am now. <laughs> 10 years later, whereas we as adults can look at a picture of ourselves. I can look at a picture of myself with Martha 25 years ago, and it still feels like I, I can uh, use that to self-soothe. I can use it to trigger recollections of who we were then. There's much more continuity between that adult ego and where I am right now. For a child, a 15-year-old child feels like a five-year-old version of himself is long gone. So Mary, we talk a lot at the Dougie Center about, you know, what are grieving children need? And we have the basics of honest information and predictability and routine, but also flexibility and care and nurturance. What are some of the biggest needs that you see for grieving kids? Well, I think one of the, the first ones is a sense of safety and security. Because their survival instinct is so primary for children, one of the first ways they react, particularly to a parent's death, is uh, with questions about what, what is going to happen to me. So uh, a sense that, uh, that they will be taken care of no matter what happens to a parent uh, is critical for them. Structure and routine really help that if we try to keep them on the schedule that makes their lives go forward. They also need an opportunity to express their feelings at all of those developmental levels in ways that aren't judged. One of the evenings, just before I was doing a launch about this, someone said to me, what's your book about? And I said, it's about childhood grief uh, of a child whose mother died at three and a half. And they said, gee, we wouldn't even think that she'd remember her at three and a half, as though somehow that meant that there was no grieving. Um, there are many people who make the mistake of thinking that the time and distance away from the event means that a child's feelings only reemerge if we didn't do it right the first time. And that's just not true. I said the other night at a conference, at a book event, that most often the best answer that you can give a child when they say, I'm feeling now uh, angry at my mother for dying, maybe 10 years later. That's the answer you can give is, of course you are. You're growing up now. You're seeing it differently. You're feeling it differently. Tell me more about that. 
letting them express their feelings at all of those levels without feeling like you or they failed uh, at the time of the original death and the processing of that is an important one. Also not projecting what you are feeling as an adult. It's not always early, easy to listen to a child's grief, but sometimes where they are is they need a simple answer to a simple question. And what that simple question triggers in us is a whole complex of adult sadness. Uh, withholding some of that to say, you tell me what you feel. What do you really need to know right now? So I think those are really important. Consistency, routine, open ability, and not having a, a negative reaction from adults that either they are disappointed in themselves or in you or that there's something wrong with you when you raise the question again and again. And that key point with questions of making sure that we clarify what kids are actually asking. I was recently talking with a group of kids about, you know, what's the one thing you wish someone would tell you? And a few kids said, I really wish someone could tell me why my person died. And, and we had to slow down and ask, like, do you mean why did they die in that bigger picture existential way? Or are you asking about what happened to make their body stop working? Some of the kids were like, yeah, like what happens when someone has a heart attack? I don't get it. And others, particularly the older ones, they were more wondering, like, why me? Why did my dad have to be the one who died? Why was he chosen? Yes. I think that's a great example. I remember a nine-year-old who said to me once, I get death. I get that your body stops, your heart stops, you can't breathe, you know, your body, is, it ends. What I don't get is gone. And I thought, what a beautiful way to say, I don't understand sort of disappearance and forever and never coming back and not being anywhere. And I, I think we have to really be clear, what are you asking? Um, and what do you need to know right now? Because the truth is that building a child's resistance is happens with practice. Resilience is a muscle. And if you exercise it well at five, you you build it so that the questions at 10 and the questions at 15 lean on that. But you can't inoculate a child from the questions coming, the 15-year-old questions uh, being there when the time comes. The gift is setting yourself up as someone that a kid can come to with those tough questions. So when they do arise, kids don't have to like shove them aside or think there's something wrong with them. They know like, oh, here's an trusted adult who can have this conversation with me at whatever level I'm ready to have this conversation. I think that's very true. Mary, you and I were talking a little before we were going to record this episode, and, and you mentioned that you've been thinking about the idea that, that when a child has a parent or a caregiver die, uh, there's the idea that they're grieving for the person, so in Leah Marie's case, her mom, and then also grieving for the act of mothering, and then the state of being motherless. Can you talk a little bit more about that? Yes, this is not uh, specifically in the book. This is something that really has evolved in my own thinking after writing the book and, and writing more essays about this process, because one of the most frustrating things is the true statement that every child's grief is unique. It depends on the relationship they had, the age they were at the death, uh, their personality, but saying to other clinicians and parents and bereavement coaches, every child's grief is unique, is, is not helpful. And I was trying to find a way to formulate how 
clinicians could be look could look at a grieving child and and assess. And what became clear to me is that there are really three manifestations of grief for all children, and they come back in time. They rotate through. The first is, and I, I am talking primarily about parents. You could say mother mothering motherlessness or you could say father fathering fatherlessness i don't know whether this model would work outside those primary parents quite as neatly as it does here to uh, to use the mother side uh, there is the loss of the person and in early childhood that's a very sensate loss that is literally the loss of the touch and and the feel and the taste of mother um, because those are our first memories before we have language. At an older age, it's the question of who was my mother? What did she like? What would she think of me? And again, at adolescence, it might be, how am I like her? What, it, what Who was she as a unique person? What did she do with her life? That is the that is the mother loss itself, and it keeps coming back at different levels. Mothering, I see as both a function and a relationship. The function is who will help me with the things that uh, need to be done that I see as the role of a mother, who's going to braid my hair, who's going to take me to school, it, who is going to help me learn um, an athletic skill that I really want to learn. But more importantly than that, I learned from Leah Marie that mothering is uh, was for her a place to put her mother love. There were certain moments when she really wanted me to come for an event. And long after her mother's death, and when she had both her dad, who was a wonderful full-time parent for her, and a nanny who could have taken that role very competently, but I was, in her mind, the substitute mother, the person who thought of her as a child, and the place she put her mother love. Motherlessness is the third uh, manifestation of grief. Um, that is, in some ways, unique to children in the sense that their egos are so fragile and, and forming through. And so that motherlessness is the question, what does it mean about who I am? and who I will become that I am without a mother. And so that's a, a, a question that I mentioned before when uh, Leah Marie was seven or eight, that she was asking, is there something wrong with me that the world chose to give me this particular challenge? Does it mean I'm defective in some way? Often at, in adolescence, you will have uh, both boys and girls a little hesitant about intimacy hesitant about reaching out to trust and to uh, bring love into their relationships because their their sense is I, I don't have the normal course of teaching about this I don't I don't understand intimacy and closeness I never had that experience even though in many ways they may have they don't identify it as that because their frame is not the same as everyone else's. Occasionally, that motherlessness makes it harder for them to emancipate, which is the opposite problem. I don't want to leave that which is really valuable to me because it triggers 
feelings of being left. But the motherlessness piece is a question of, does it make me somehow deficient because this happened to me? I'm appreciating this way of thinking about these aspects of grief and how there's the description of the person, the person who's no longer here, and then there's the relationship, the interactive piece, and then there's the identity aspect of it. That's exactly right. And Mary, your father died when you were just 19. How did your experience of being a young adult grieving a parent interact with being an adult grieving for your sister? I, you know, that was an, that is an interesting question. I do believe any profound grief takes us back to uh, the well of grief, as the poets say, where there's wisdom and we grieve and revisit all of the griefs in our life. Martha's death did bring me back to that early experience in two important ways. I think one is that I realized how little I had grieved my father. When my father died very suddenly and unexpectedly, my mother's grief was my primary concern. I was old enough to see how devastated she was and to sort of switch into caring for her, caring about her, and not really grieving for myself as much as I might have. And the second part of that was that I realized with the fullness of my grief for my sister as an adult that I really was never going to get that with my dad. I only knew him as a child knows a father. I regrieved a little bit of that too, saying he was gone before I knew him, and I really never got to have the relationship with him that I would have had as an adult. Yeah, that, that aspect of grieving what was and grieving what won't be. Exactly. I think that's well said. One of the other parts of your book, I think it was pretty close to the beginning, that I was really struck by was how you write about traumatic memories not being linear. Like we don't recall them in any sort of logical sequence and they can be scattered and pinpointed, both vague and crystallized, which can be confusing. How do you see the evolution of grief? Does it resemble the same non-sequential, non-logical expression of those traumatic memories? Or for you, does grief itself feel more linear? I think that's a fascinating question, and, and I'm not sure I have a, you know, a complete answer to it. Certainly profound grief um, has elements of trauma where memories are fractionated and isolated, and they aren't set in uh, the kind of simple frame of space and time, and you recall them in a very fractured way. Uh, I think the early stages of grief has that in common with just pure trauma. I do think there's an order to grief, um, but I'm not one who believes in stages. I think the only order is unique to each of us. Sometimes we can't really see it in retrospect. Um, We can look back and say, yes, I, I had to battle my guilt. I had to battle my anger. I had to battle this. But I don't think that there's a model of grief that fits all of that. And I'm sort of resistant to a stage model because I think that it invites people to feel like they have to go in a certain path. And the truth is that the journey is all over the place and very unique for each person's uh, story. I I don't think it means we're stuck 
forever. And I don't think it means that we're not, that there isn't a process. There is something called adaptive grief. And most of us, if we're blessed with all the resources we need and some ability to self-reflect, move from that profound grief to an adaptive stage where we have created meaning out of what's happened to us, brought some joy back in our lives and can choose to feel the pain or to keep it at some distance. For me, writing this book has been a piece of that. Um, I no longer think only of the pain of the loss of my sister. I think of the fact that this book wouldn't be if that hadn't happened. And that gives me a sense of meaning and it's a comfort. As you were talking, the image that was coming to my mind was like of a kid just scribbling away at their paper, making a picture, and they're like really in it. And it's only when they sit back and look at it as a whole that they can see the edges and get some perspective. And I wonder if that can be a bit of how grief is experienced by people that it doesn't feel linear or logical in the moment, but when they look back, that's when they can say, oh, right, that's where I went in this direction. And then where I went over here and they have a sense of grief being a process, but, but not that linear experience. I think that's true. I, for me, when I think about childhood grief, I think of it as almost like that spiral coil in a notebook that continues to move up with age and time and cognitive and emotional growth. It's as though there are poles on the side of that coil that you touch at a different height each time you make that swing up and you reconnect again with the feelings of loss, feelings of anger, feelings of confusion, and you move into feelings of wanting to know more as a young adult about this person and creating some meaning and positive connection. For very young children, we have to keep creating memories for them uh, about who their parent is and as they grow up. You can't hold on only to the memories you were fortunate enough to make with them. You have to make new ones uh, by getting to know their life story and their friends, if you can, and whatever other resources you have. And that brings keeps that person alive in your story. Mary, I can't thank you enough for the gift that your book is and the vital role that you played in the life of your niece, Leah Marie, and, and her expression and her experience of grief over time. Well, thank you. This has been a wonderful conversation. I appreciate your wise and thoughtful questions. And listeners, really, I've read a lot of books about kids and grief, and please go read this one. I will link to it in the show notes. Mary has a fascinating way of giving words to grief and, and to describing something that is so often indescribable. So Mary, thank you again for joining me today. Thank you for having me. And listeners, thank you for being part of our community. If you're new to our show, you can find all of our episodes, all the places that you find your podcasts. And we're produced by the Dougie Center for Grieving Children, and we're a nonprofit. So all of the work that we do for kids and families, making the show, all of our online resources, we do all of that thanks in part to, to the donations from community members just like you. So if you're ever feeling called to support us in that way, you can go to our website, dougy.org forward slash grief out loud, and just click the donate button. Thanks for listening. Hope you'll join us again next time.